Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and we're back with part two of this excellent talk that Ramdas gave in 1993 in Reno, Nevada, uh, as a benefit for Seva Foundation and Lama Foundation. And it's uh, called, I mean, we're calling it, it was not called this, but uh, I gave it this title, A Sense of Change. And this is part two, as promised. Um, this uh, it, part two starts off Ramdas talking about the 60s. And uh, it, it was a bit of the me generation, but it was more about working on ourselves to transform ourselves because we saw it was our naivete and our impurity that polarized our scene, polarized the scene. It was our lack of wisdom. We realized we had to work harder on ourselves. Uh, and then he talks about dealing with the paradoxes of life across two planes. And quoted the Tao Te Ching, where it says, He does nothing, and nothing is left undone. This, you know, this great, great paradox. And it's about being able to... Uh, internally work on ourselves, this is my interpretation, uh, internally work on ourselves, yet still do the things that are necessary in this life to serve however we can serve. And you've got to be out there doing this simultaneously. You can't just work on yourself and go in a cave. Uh, first of all, you're not going to have that rough sandpaper that allows karma to evaporate. And second of all, you're not making a, con a real contribution unless you're, of course, a, a, a completely realized being, a siddha, where you can affect without any kind of physical interaction. Um, so it's, it's finding that place where we are at rest inside our beings, living these two levels simultaneously. So this really... Uh, moves around, this part of the talk moves around that sense of change and how we deal with these changes uh, on, on two planes at once. This is something Ramdas has talked about forever, uh, and it's a, um, it's, a, it's a very, very important, um, very important teaching. It's very difficult because uh, we get we are we get so attached and we get so polarized and we get so reactive that we can't find that that rest place that deep deep rest place peace place inside ourselves which is why um you know i mean right now uh we just when this uh podcast comes out i think we'll just have finished this uh, amazing uh, autumn mindfulness and meditation course from Ramdas, and and in it are many many different ways to uh, you know to to work on our perspective, as he talked about in the in the first part of this uh, this talk that we're just putting out, as well as the method different methods of meditation, and different men methods of using mantras and so on, to really uh, drive us further internally to be able to manifest that deep, restful, peaceful place from which we can take real action. Um, and finally, in this, he talks about uh, conscious, I love this, conscious compassion. Isn't that a great phrase? Conscious compassion, meaning 
you were just driven to work on ourselves in order to be of service to those around us and to the greater world at large. It's what Ramdas represents when he came back from India that first time, where he he was just driven to share this and and uh, allow people to fold them fold themselves within this wisdom that he had been given, this grace that he had been given, this unconditional love that he had been given. And uh, that kind of drive, it's not something that we invent or think about or willfully do. It just comes from a, a natural place that we really f- know about our interconnectivity with the, with the universe, but in a more simple way with with everybody around us, not everybody and everything, and so we we just act. We act to clean up our act. <laughs> we act to uh, change our hearts. Talk about a sense of change. I mean, that is the real change. And, and within that change, we are not in fear of the outside forces that seem so radical that we, we, we as I said before, become very polarized, very fearful. And uh, the world is a tough place when you're living in that perspective. So this is a, just a great talk. Uh, and uh, the second part, uh, again, I'm, I'm glad we did this, uh, putting together, giving an entire talk uh, over a couple of podcasts. It's uh, something unusual. Maybe we'll do it again. We need to hear from you all if this, uh, if this worked for you and if you enjoyed it and found it useful. Uh, please let us know. We want to hear from you anyhow. You know, write, make some comments in, in, on the podcast page. And um, While I'm at it, thinking about this stuff, please help support what we're doing. Uh, and I always tell people, please go to grab that Amazon link that's... Uh, on the, on the menu, uh, support on BeHereNowNetwork.com, and you'll see the Amazon link. Just copy and paste it into your browser so that whenever you decide to buy, and we're coming into the Christmas season, and, you know, where we want to gift people, send them our love through gifts, please definitely use that Amazon link to buy your purchases at Amazon because, as you know, I've said a billion times, this will allow us to get a little, little piece, uh, percentage of whatever you spend and um, as an affiliate of Amazon. And I know there are other issues with Amazon, but this is, is such a great way. I mean, otherwise, we need your, if you don't want to do that, then, of course, just a donation uh, is terrific. And... Uh, and further, something else you can do is we have a wonderful store on ramdas.org. Go to the store, the shop, and there's a lot of great books and a, a lot of other wonderful items that uh, that you can get. We have this great little puja kit, by the way, that uh, a good friend of ours put together that uh, 
uh, is uh, Chris. That's just uh, a, a great thing for carrying around. Travel kit. It's a little travel puja. It's fantastic. Uh, all right. I just had to do that. We. It is the season where we are asking people for support. So there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed, and we will see you next time around Ramdas Here and Now on the Be Here Now Network. Namaste. What happened in the 60s is extremely interesting, to me anyway. <laughs> you all okay? You still here? Did I bore you into the ground? Um. In the 60s, there was really the sense of the exciting new moment. Kennedy came into office, new generation. Psychedelics came along, and many thousands of us began to see that the absolute reality we thought we were living in wasn't as absolute as we thought it was. That was only one part of the technology that changed things. Travel, information, changed our relations to time and space. This was a profound period in the 60s. It was post-World War II affluence that allowed a certain kind of freeing up of systems. There was incredible excitement. It was the beginning of the death knell, it appeared, of a vertical patriarchal institutional system in the country. I remember groups of people standing, holding hands around the Pentagon, chanting so the Pentagon would rise. I mean, the Pentagon, which is thought of as like a, a stable thing. And a group of people, whether it rose or not isn't the issue. I'm sure some people saw it rising. <laughs> what is fascinating, though, is a group of people would sit around an icon as powerful as the Pentagon and treat it as, as just a trivial piece of cardboard facade. That ability to break out of these kinds of vertical institutional structures was incredibly empowering the civil rights movement, sexual freedom, the women's movement was spawned at that time, and the major one was that a lot of people said our foreign policy as represented in Vietnam is morally not acceptable, and they were free enough to protest. Now, 
we were very naive in the 60s. We thought that because we had tasted of, of relationships that were rooted in love rather than fear, because most of the social institutions we were dealing under were really fear-driven. They're driven to protect people. They're driven out of fear. We thought that because we saw it all so clearly because of our feeling of love for each other, that the whole thing would change just like that. Tim Leary and I used to have a chart on the board of how soon everybody would get enlightened. And it was like 10 years at the most, at the outside. I mean, the symbols of taking on institution were bizarre, like the picture of sticking the flower into the rifle. But what in fact did happen was that even though that breath of possibility of who we could be entered into our consciousness, the individual, the emphasis on the individual human heart as the basic social institution instead of these large structures raised the specter of anarchy and chaos in the society. And it in fact mobilized the conservative and fundamental part of the of the population and gave them incredible juice and the pendulum swung the other way. And in a way the 60s created the 70s and the 80s as surely as pendulums swing. Because what we thought in the 60s was that we would create alternative systems, like the whole business of usury, of interest on money, is, a, is, is much different than bartering. We'll have bartering. We'll set up systems outside the, the usual cultural systems. We underestimated the power of the fear of the entrenched values that people don't give up their power lightly. But now come the 90s. What happened to many of us after the 60s, many of us went and said, well, if they're not going to play, screw them, I'll work on myself. And it became what was known as the me generation or narcissism. A lot of that was the hostile label of others towards us who were saying, we'll work on ourselves to transform ourselves because we saw that it was our naivete and our impurity that polarized the scene. It was our lack of wisdom. And we realized we had to work harder on ourselves. Other people said, Look, I'm just going to 
get what I can out of the system, and that became the yuppie movement. What's in it for me? How much can I get? And we saw in the 80s a quality of greed before which fell before which fell truth, before which fell any kind of morality, untrammeled greed. What we saw was a very interesting thing. In the relation between government and business, when business wins, there is piracy. And what Russia showed us, you know, rather the USSR, when government wins, there is tyranny. And what we're learning is that we need some balances, checks and balances, about our own greed and our own obsession with power as humans, as humans. But now in the 90s, it's different. Conditions are different, and that wind of possible change is still in the air, or it's once again in the air. The difference is that the baby boomers are going to be 50 in 1996. That there's no longer a them to fight against. It's like Pogo, we met the enemy, and it's us. That what, what Clinton and Gore represent is the potential that some of the things we dreamt were possible in terms of compassion, in terms of truth, in terms of trust, in terms of decency, in terms of justice. There's just the whisper of a hope. I was watching an interview with George Stephanopoulos last night, the director of communications, whose family are all priests, and he was going to study for the priesthood, and then he went into politics because he thought he could serve people better that way. It's interesting. And uh, Rose asked him, Leonard Rose asked him, what is your greatest fear? And he said, the fear that we will break, we will not be worthy of the trust. Now, my estimate of the situation is this, that what you and I see as possible in our dreams, in our quiet moments, in terms of human relationships, in terms of decent acknowledgement, do you realize what, what, we, what we experience is possible, but it's only possible by our participation. And do you realize the cost it costs you to walk by 
a hungry person on the street. I mean, do you think you get off scot-free because you gave at the office? Do you realize what it does to, it forces you to armor your heart to treat another human being as them? Are the Bosnians them? Are the Serbs them? Who's them? Who's them? That concept of pushing away somebody, of pushing away suffering, does something to your human heart that cuts you off from living spirit in life. But do you and I have what it takes to look with unblinking gaze at what is and not be fried by it, not go under by it? Do you and I have the capacity to look at the universe of suffering and still be joyful. I speak at many peace rallies and I'm amazed at how angry everybody is. <laughs> and you think, how bizarre, how bizarre. Where is peace going to begin? If you weren't like this, we could all be peaceful. God, I don't want to be around you. What you and I are called upon to do is to find the place to stand in ourselves from which we can look at what is in the universe, recognize the possibility that it may all blow up, or it may all turn out beautiful. Do what we can, what is our unique predicament that allows us to do what we can to relieve suffering without being freaked by what we can't do. And with all that, be peaceful and joyful. That's what all of the inner spiritual work prepares a person to do. Because it gives you a context from which you can look at the events from moment to moment without getting lost in them. It's Ramana Maharshi, the saint, saying, when they say, don't leave us, don't leave us, he says, don't be silly, where can I go? I'm just dying. It's that one. Now, to push you really far in terms of what the mystical journey is about, Any place you stand at all, you are vulnerable. There is a mystical saying, say, mystical saying that says, there is nowhere to stand. The question is, can you stand nowhere? 
can you see this flip of perspectives? We are insignificant. We are very significant. It's about to end. It's only starting. We're a dream. This is all a love affair with God. This is all emptiness. This is all a creation of my mind. Can you keep all those planes going all at once? See, for years, some of us were busy getting high. You start with a normal waking consciousness like the car needs oil, I need to do my laundry. And then you flip your consciousness. You go to church, whatever you do to flip your consciousness. You meditate, hold your breath, smoke, surf, ski, have sex, whatever it is you do. Everybody's got a trip. Cook a bouillabaisse, crochet. I mean, it's like... A I've told so many times about the woman that was about 70 years old sitting in the front row of my lecture. And it was back in the years in the 60s when everybody was 15 to 25. And I was really telling very far out stories about my psychedelic journey. And this woman was going like this. And I thought, how does she know? Then I thought, well, maybe she's got a neck problem. You know, because, I mean, it was just so bizarre because she was agreeing with everything. And at the end, I kind of willed her over to me, <laughs> just smiled at her, and she came up and she said, everything you said made such perfect sense. I mean, I was talking about La La Land, you know. I said, how do you know? She leaned forward very conspiratorially, and she said, I crochet. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is you do to alter your state of consciousness, at first you come into planes of awareness where you experience, say, the unity of all things. You see. You see what you theoretically knew intellectually. You actually experience the interrelatedness of things. You see the way in which Something moving here affects something there, and you begin to feel the web of interconnectedness of all forms in the universe, that there's only one thing. I mean, this is exactly what physicists now, the leading physicists tell you, but mystics have known it for a long time because they saw it. So you see the kind of oneness of all things. And then whatever your method is, you leave the church or whatever you do, and you come back down into normal waking consciousness, down and up a really phony metaphor. I mean, don't, don't get caught in that. In and out, here and there. And it gets very, very difficult for a long time because what you experience at one level is not integrated with the way you're living at another level. It's like we're all one, but it's my television set. And it's really hard. It's really hard. I don't know whether it's hard for you. It was hard for me. It's very hard for me. 
and you start living with the paradoxes across planes. Paradox really means two things that are logically inconsistent. But if you're dealing with vertical planes of consciousness, you find that there are a lot of things that are true on one level and not true on another level. For example, he does nothing and nothing is left undone. That's a line from the Tao Te Ching. Now, is somebody off their rocker? If you did nothing, how could anything get done? It's talking about planes of consciousness. It's talking about a place in your awareness where you are at rest in your being. And out of that rest, all this stuff is happening. These arms are moving. This mouth is speaking. But inside is absolutely silent, present, So if I am living on two levels simultaneously, look at how different it is than if I'm just living in this body. If I'm just living in this body and this body gets old and is going to get die, I'm going to freak. But if I am living in my awareness, which is as I've experienced or gone into it, has nothing to do with me individually and has nothing to do with time or space or birth or death. It's just pure awareness. Then I can experience my life as passing show. Does it make my life trivial? No. It makes it precious and beautiful, but there is no clinging with fear. What happened to you and I was that we got born into separateness and we took it seriously. We got born into these bodies, into these things, and we decided that's who we were. And as long as you got born, because what happened was you came, vast awareness came and came down the fallopian tube and came into this, wah, 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 here I am. And then everybody said, she's come or he's come. And because everybody around you thought they were somebody, they assumed you were somebody too. And so they said, oh, aren't you sweet? Oh, smile, aren't you wonderful? And you're in there saying, bleh. You know, I mean, this thing doesn't work, and what the hell are you doing in this? And my God, it's such a little container, and you're so vast. And, but after a while, you get conned. You buy into the game. You begin to think you're who they think you are. It's this vast conspiracy in which you end up being this separate entity, which you, and then you're as tiny. Everybody's knees are up here. I mean, you're tiny and you're so vulnerable and everybody's so big and the whole system's so vast. No wonder you end up feeling inadequate and frightened and vulnerable. In fact, who you are isn't vulnerable. The worst that can happen is your body's going to die. Big deal. It's happened many times.
If you have tasted of the plains, and it, it happens to everybody, there is a continuous process in human consciousness where you are constantly going out of the constructions of your mind, what you call your ego structure or your phenomenal self. You're constantly flipping out of it. But what happens is because your structure is so, uh, is so strong, you interpret these experiences in which you go back into who you are in your vast sense as, quote, I was out of my mind or I don't know what happened, or I must be crazy, or I wasn't thinking anything just then. We have socialized out of existence our, our transcendent states. There's a great line if I have it somewhere here. Don't go away, it's somewhere here. Here's a quote from a psychiatric textbook. <laughs> Don't laugh yet, I haven't even read it. <laughs> the obvious similarities between schizophrenic regression and the practice of yoga and Zen merely indicates that the general trend in Oriental culture is to withdraw into self from overbearingly difficult physical and social reality. It's like the church described declaring that meditation is evil. that when you've got a group of entities who think they are real and they form a social structure, the social structure is to protect them as separate entities. And your mind is that instrument in you that's designed, your thinking mind is a central control system of your separateness designed to keep your game together as a separate entity and protect you so you can survive as long as possible. And death is seen as the enemy. There's this other part of you which is often related to the heart which has no boundary to it. Statement, my heart goes out to you. And it's interesting that you and I are having this dialogue between our mind and our heart, between our brain and our heart, the heart saying, I love you, you want it, use it, take it, take everything, take anything, take my life. And the mind is saying, now wait a minute, we have insurance to pay. <laughs> and actually, the mind starts to treat the heart as the enemy. There was a woman I was working, I was teaching a course in New York at St. John the Divine 
uh, for people, all of whom were working out with, on the street with service and service work. One woman said, I go to work every day to the corner and take the bus, and she said, for the past eight months, there's been a man standing on the corner with a paper cup, and she said, I give him a little money every now and then, and there was a silence, and then she looked a little sheepish, and she said, actually, he's been there so long, I've worked out a budget. I, I give him about two and a half dollars a week, uh, sort of random times. She said, but I realized after taking this course with you that I have never acknowledged his existence as a human being. She said, and I thought about it and I realized I was afraid. She said, I asked, what was I afraid of? She said, I was afraid that if I let him into my heart, he'd end up in my living room. Can you hear the pain of that for all of us? I mean, you wouldn't let your child starve to death, but there are 60,000 people today that died of starvation. But they're them, they're not us. But the mind says they're them, the heart says they're us. So, what All of the work that people did on their inner beings now is the time when that work is valuable to the well to the common good if you can stand nowhere if you even know of that potential you can smooth out the rough edges that are going to happen. To the extent that you have cultivated and developed planes of consciousness and reality, in addition to the normal waking consciousness and the material plane, you can see your lifestyle change without feeling loss. I go to Europe, I travel a lot around the world, and when I'm in Europe, like in England, most of the places I live in are very modest houses. And they may have some heating, but some of the rooms are cold. And the refrigerators are small. And there's a lot of use of public transportation. And you 
people use cars some, but not as much. I was just in Prague. And I was in a hotel looking down on um, a place where the, the trams all came by from, from many big major streets. And I watched this sea of humanity getting on the trams and off the trams. And I looked. You could see no cars around because they don't have private cars. And I w went down to the street figuring, well, at least they're going to look miserable. You know, they didn't look miserable. They didn't look miserable. We have gotten addicted to a standard of life. We are standing on the top of a mountain that is crumbling out from underneath us. And if you're afraid of change, you are going to be part of the problem. And if you can say, here we go, there goes my IRA. you could conceivably be part of the solution. Were you and I to be part of the solution? And what I mean by that is that the way the game is at this moment in this country is that we are feeling that breath again of possibility and we're feeling the cold breath breathing down on our necks of imminence of something horrible lest we get our game together. We know that it's going to get tougher before it gets better because this is a birth process. It may get better and it may not. In the presence of all of that, to be able to look at the world as it is, keep your heart open even though it's breaking, do what you can to relieve suffering, and find in the midst of that peace and equanimity and joy. Most of us have thought that our happiness is only possible if we look away from pain and suffering. I want to suggest to you that that isn't the case. That when you stop judging God or judging the universe, because you don't even know why the suffering exists, do you think when you say the suffering exists because of economic this or greed or this or that, that's only you're dealing with symptoms. You're dealing with stuff on the surface. There is a deeper mystery to the whole game. You don't know why death exists. You're going to decide it's wrong. You don't even know why. How presumptuous to judge the game when you don't even understand it. All you can do is live with the mystery. And the mystery and the mystery contains suffering and it contains death. So when you say to me, are you happy? I say yes. 
You say to me, are you sad? I say, yes. Because at this moment, a child is dying in its mother's arms. But at this moment, there is also a family holding a child in great joy and love that's a new baby. To deny either of those is to get caught in turning my consciousness away from what is in order to be a certain way. What you and I end up as when we really let it all in is we end up with the fullness of this moment that has in it all of it. All of it. Don't shortchange yourself. This moment has in it the fear, the possibility, the end, the beginning, before the beginning. It has the sadness, the hope, the hopelessness. Where do you stand in relation to hope? Are you hopeful or is it hopeless? Both of them are traps. Best place to stand is halfway between hope and hopelessness. Standing nowhere, being everywhere. Doing what you do. If you expect that whatever consciousness, degree of consciousness is in Bill Clinton, is going to be sufficient so that you can say, well, he's a nice guy and he means well, so I can sit back and watch. Forget it. Because when the chips are down and the pressure is on and the push comes to shove, not one of us is yet ready to survive and not go under. And the only way we can hold on to the values that we treasure of compassion, of justice, of, of love, of joy, of possibility, of fairness, is by giving each other the support for it. It's called satsang or sangha or the community of beings. And in order for you and I to be part of that community of consciousness, of what you'd call conscious compassion, we are driven to work on ourselves. We work on ourselves as an offering to all beings. But the predicament is you can't go off to a cave to work on yourself. So the game is you've got to be working on yourself and, not, and also be involved at the same moment. Like, I look at the news, and I have to, if I just look at the news, like Peter Jennings is a sweet guy. I like Peter Jennings. But Peter Jennings also is a very distorted reality. I mean, Peter Jennings makes probably well over a million dollars. He represents a network that's worth billions of dollars. He's making judgments of what is news and what isn't based on his part of the conspiracy of what reality is. He's reinforcing a certain reality 
In the old days, they used to say, that's the way it is today. It's the way he thinks it is today. When I meditate, before I look at the news, I pull back into spacious awareness until I am seeing phenomena arise and fall away. Bubbles, dreams, thoughts, sensations, the phenomena, civilizations, all of it. And I find a place in me that is not caught in reactivity. And then I turn on the news. Ah, Bosnia. Ah, Hillary. Ah, the rains. Ah, so. Ah, so. If I can hear all that without reactivity, it is said in the Tao, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. That if you desire things and get caught in frustration and anger and wishing it was this way and expectation it will be that way, you can't hear how it all is. You lose it. You're of no value. You're just part of the mob of animals rushing towards the cliff. You and I have the possibility of standing with one foot in the world, fighting, protesting, representing the rural alliance for military accountability or whatever we represent, being those human rights consciousnesses, we can be that, but we have to work on ourselves to not get sucked in by the game. And yet we can't be afraid of playing the game. That's what's so fascinating. That our spiritual practice in the United States at this moment is sitting in the fire and burning and doing it with joy. Sitting right in the marketplace and also pulling back. Like in the morning, if you sit down for a few minutes, and just quiet down and take any holy book you want, any mystic book you want, and just read a shloka or read a paragraph from it, and stop and just reflect about the day from that place. And then you go out and live it and you get caught immediately. Oh, God. And then at the end of the day, in the evening, you sit back and maybe read the same thing again and, and then make a list of all the ways you got caught all day. Everything you took seriously. I really thought that was real. <clears throat> if she hadn't have said that and I hadn't have said that and, you know. I mean, you probably really think your personal history is real. You really think your abuse was real. All it is now is your mind. All you got now is your mind. Your mind is taking this, this, amorphous set of, how do you know there's a human being up here? What do you see? You're seeing light and shadow and stuff, and you're saying, there's Ramdas. You've had it. You've been had. You've been had by a conspiracy of mind. Could you ever get free? Yes. 
And only if somebody is free can they free someone else. And what you and I want of this culture is the freedom of spirit. And for that, we work on ourselves. I should stop. I know I'm getting way over, and I've been talking too much, and I should tell more stories. I'm a dismal failure. <laughs> I can't help it. I, every night is different. I never know. Sometimes I'm great, and sometimes it stinks. I don't You're great. This is, I mean, I, I don't usually go this deep. I don't know why I picked Reno to do that in. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.